Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. After launching my second podcast last week, Companies That Care, I'll be alternating each week. This week on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, I interview Nana Osuji a first-generation American whose parents immigrated from Nigeria. Nana is a writer, producer, and actor. She's living with lupus, which is hard enough. She's also living with being broke, gifted, and Black, the title of our podcast. We had a gritty, deep-down conversation about race in this country, among other things. I posted photos and further details about Nana on my website, including links to our podcast. You can find the background details at www fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome, Lala. Hello, Lala. Welcome to the Finding Ground podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you tell us about your life beginnings? What was your childhood like? Being that my name was Nana, a very first-generation American, I am the youngest of four. First, my dad came to the United States in the 70s, and then my mom came eight years later in the 80s with their three kids, my older siblings, and then they had me afterward. I was born in the not-so-great state of Texas. Uh. My dad, he was separated from my mom and my siblings for about seven years, and then later on, my mom and my siblings came over, and I am the first real American in my family, born and raised. My parents, like many immigrant parents really centered education. Mm -hmm. Education was huge. Even though we were not rich at all, we went to private school because someone had told my parents that public school in America is horrible. So going to a Catholic private school my whole life, even up until college, was interesting. (laughs) And obviously, since my parents are Igbo, they're Christian as well. As my siblings say, it wasn't as strict for me, but it was still a a household that centered education, good grades, Mm. value Mm -hmm. in grades. Your value was placed on what you were doing. And there was a lot of comparison to what other Nigerian kids Mm. were doing. Uh A lot of high expectations on you. A lot of high expectations, Mm. which that is a habit I still have of comparing (laughs) myself to other people. That is what was like pounded into me. Look at what this person's doing. Like, Uh why aren't you doing this? A comedian, Gina Yashari, always has this joke for Nigerian parents, you can be four things. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disgrace. Oh, gosh. Were you one of the few Black kids in your school or were there other Nigerian kids around? Not so much Nigerian. It was definitely, you know, I I talked to other African kids now that we're older. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely the African booty scratcher. And it was this desire to assimilate, Mm -hmm. like a great desire to assimilate because coming into the first grade as Nana Osuji, Like you knew when the teacher got to your last name because her face just like completely 
went into horror of like, oh my God, how do I say this name? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is this name? And so I actually went by my English name to just help assimilation. And Mm. like, there was this desire not to be Nigerian for a long time. And I actually just kind of shunned it a lot Mm -hmm. because it was always like a cultural difference for me. And so I had this great desire not to be Nigerian for a very long time, like not to embrace my culture. What was Texas like growing up in Texas for being an African person? Honestly, it was just kind of overall a rejection of that. I no longer went by Nana. I went by Cynthia. I think at one point in time when I was little, I wanted to be called Jasmine Jackson. It's American. People know how to say it. People aren't scared whenever they see my name on paper. So it was a great desire to assimilate. I think I finally came into my own when I went off to grad school, really. That's when I like really started to accept my culture and my heritage and be proud of it. But until then, it's kind of interesting being a Black immigrant because obviously you can easily assimilate also into Black American culture as well. I find myself being somewhere caught in the middle because I am very Americanized. Like I go to Nigeria and they can easily point me out. Yes, right. (laughs) Like they're very much like, that's an American. I mean, you know, or they call you an overseas and there's a word for it. Like they know that I am genetically Nigerian, but like culturally they can easily point me out and be like, that's an American. So my elementary school was K through eight. So that was actually pretty diverse. But high school was where the diversity ended because I was one of three in my grade. Then overall, I was one of 10 in the whole high school. But at the high school level, which was in a very rich neighborhood, very wealthy girls got Mercedes for their 16th birthdays, got nose jobs for their 15th birthday. Seriously? Oh my, I've, I've never even been around that kind of people. Wow. I mean, like insaneness, like get custom Land Rovers for your 16th birthday. <gasps> and that, and I didn't get that. My mom was like, that's nice. That's not you. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Great for you, not happening. In that situation, what happened is that a lot of the students of color just came together because obviously we connected more with each other. Yeah. Supported each other in our Latino, you know, Latinos Unidos, those kind of like groups that kind of upheld uh, unity within certain groups of people. We had the Black Student Alliance, but we all supported each other because Mm -hmm. there was so little of us. How did the rich white kids, how did they treat you in high school? So for me, I was lucky that I had a great personality. So we could be cool in class, but a lot of these girls went to school with each other from kindergarten Mm -hmm. through eighth grade. So they kind of knew each other. And as I've gotten older, I realized that it wasn't so much them. It was more their parents who probably Mm. were more bigoted. So it was a friendship that ended at school. And also it was just their life of privilege was just not what I related to. You know what I mean? Like I don't relate to having drunk parties at my house and my parents being okay with that. (laughs) I don't relate to that (laughs) at all. Oh, wow. So you had a number of different factors in high school that kind of set you apart. It wasn't just race. It was the way that, what did your parents do for a living? 
they owned a business together while I was mostly in school. I mean, I'm not going to lie. My older siblings, if they listen to this, they'd be like, you better tell the truth. <laughs> I was spoiled. Okay. I'm not going to so lie. Funny. Oh I my was God. Because you were the youngest. So you got I'm the youngest. Yeah. And That's by hilarious. far. Because my oldest brother is like 11 years older than me. Uh, And the one closest (laughs) to my age is like seven and a half years older than uh me. Oh, you were pampered. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm not going to sit here and be like, no, they definitely, no, I was spoiled. Uh But compared Compared to to, the girls I went to school with, and my parents, once again, put the focus on education. So they didn't want me to work because they wanted me to focus on school. Yeah, absolutely. College right. was a priority. Their thing was, your job is to go to school and get good grades. Our job is to provide for you. Mm-hmm. Th- yeah. That was the line. But I did get a, a car um, when I turned 16, but it wasn't a personalized Land Rover. <laughs> it was. It was like, it was like a 98 Nissan Ultima. It was a great car. More practical, maybe. More practical. (laughs) My mom was like, you have done absolutely nothing to earn a better car. You have done absolutely nothing to even earn this car. She's like, you're too active and I'm tired. Uh Oh, that's funny. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, I was in like theater and all this other stuff. And so they were like, we're tired of driving you to school yeah. all the time, like yeah. late at night for your rehearsals and yeah. all this other stuff. So I can relate to that. We'll get to that later. I have two theater kids as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, you get it, right? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your experience with lupus. We have a number of other questions as well, but tell us about, about lupus. Lupus was a surprise to me because no one that I know of in my family has it. And I had never been sick and I got it as an adult. I got it when I was 27 years old and I was in graduate school in New York City and I was in my second semester of school and it kind of appeared as a rash. And from there, honestly, I thought it was like an allergic reaction to something because it was just a rash on my face. And then the rash just started to go everywhere, like on my arms and my hands. And they buried on my fingers. It looked like a whole bunch of ant bites on my arms. They look like big, huge. And I, I don't want this to sound bad, but you know, when they have those movies about the AIDS crisis in the 80s, mm-hmm those lesions that they show with Mm -hmm. the, it looked like that on my arms. Mm -hmm. So for a moment I was like, do I have AIDS? Right. I like, I was just like, I don't know what this is Mm -hmm. at all. And so I went to a dermatologist because I was like, okay, you're going to tell me I have an allergic reaction or something. And I take off my makeup And the dermatologist who does not have a good bedside manner was just like, that looks like lupus. Oh my gosh. And I just start crying because the only thing I knew of lupus was in college. One of my best friends, her friend had lupus. And all I constantly heard was she's in the hospital for kidney failure. You know, I just constantly heard about this young woman struggling. So I went through a very long process Mm. to finally get diagnosed. 
with lupus. And I actually did think for one moment, I did go get tested for AIDS. Cause I was like, is this? Cause all uh-huh. she did was tell me you're immunocompromised. She took a biopsy and some blood and I was on a very loud Harlem bus and I could barely hear her. And all she said is you're immunocompromised and it's out of the scope of my practice. You need to go see a specialist. <sighs> and I'm still in grad school, you know, still trying to better my life go to many doctors and I have a a reaction to one of the first medications that they give me. And I'm just like, I don't want to do this. So I found a center that practices East and West medicine. And I was getting these injections that were the most expensive thing in the world. They're about 370 per injection. Everything was paid out of pocket. My first appointment was about $1,900 out of pocket. And I'm a grad student and I'm not really working and I live in New York City. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very expensive. Yes. But I did it for two years and I maxed out all my credit cards and my parents started to help me. And it just kind of changed everything. My hair started to fall out and I was just miserable. I, I did finish school. And then less than a year later, I was hospitalized for the first time with kidney failure due to lupus. Just like your friend's friend. Yeah, just like my friend's friend. I was put on high dose steroids, which is a thousand milligrams for three days. I was on a really high dose of steroids. They have this pulse steroids, which they inject you intravenously for three days, a thousand milligrams. So you blow up instantly. And I had water everywhere. Like I couldn't fit my shoes. It kind of looked like I had elephantitis, but it was just severe edema. Like Mm -hmm. you could press my body and it would pit. Like there was so much water in my body. And I had to leave New York after I graduated. And then less than a month later, I came back and I was hospitalized again with more severe kidney failure. There are classes with lupus nephritis. So the first time I was hospitalized, it was class two. And the next time I was hospitalized in Dallas, it was class four and five, which are the worst because they're five. And so I went through that whole high dose steroids again, because I refused to do their chemotherapy. And I kind of just coasted, I'm going to say, because at that point I was in my thirties. I felt like this thing had robbed me of the life I wanted. I wasn't supposed to come back to Texas. I was supposed to be working in film and media because that's what I was getting my master's in. I wasn't supposed to be frequenting doctor's offices and taking up to 67 pills a day. Like that wasn't supposed to be my life. And it just kind of put me in a very deep depression, not realizing how important the kidneys are. When your kidneys go bad, a lot of other things go bad too. So I developed a lot of other ailments. I just became sickly out of like, basically like everything from gout, which is an old man's disease right? to what has now become chronic kidney disease to even chronic dry eye, which I thought was fake, Uh. but it's real guys. (laughs) Do they, do they know how you, how you got lupus? No. I'm the only person in my family that wow. has it. And even like cousins and aunts, uncles, <sighs> I, I'm the only one. They usually say there's a genetic predisposition and either it can come or it can, you know, either it can manifest or not. That really sucks. Uh, 
Yeah. How many years ago did you move back to Texas? I moved back six years ago, almost seven years now. And that must have been just the fact you have to go come back to your family, but also you were in this diverse melting pot of a place in New York and then going back to Texas must have been quite a shock. Yeah. I mean, I, I left Texas at 17 after I graduated from high school. I was like, I'm never coming back. I went to school out of state. I, I came back for one year. I gave myself some grace. And then I moved to New York and never looked back. Mm-hmm. It, it just sucked. Honestly, it was a culture shock. And it was kind of like going back into like, I want to say the wilderness almost like it was isolation because yeah. all the people I had made high school were gone. I hadn't been here really since I was 17. And I was now like in my 30s. A lot of my cousins didn't even live here. It was hard. Hard is an understatement, but I needed to be near family because it just got too expensive to be sick. It got way too expensive. And 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 I needed someone to help take care of me because right. I was constantly going in and out of the hospital or doctor's appointments. Do they give you any hope for making lupus more livable in the future? The thing about lupus is that when it involves your kidneys or a a major organ, it becomes a completely different disease. So now as I am, I have like advanced renal failure and lupus is not even like And I don't even think we're treating lupus anymore. We're treating the kidneys. Really? And so I'm hoping that maybe I can survive on 30% kidney function. But right now I'm at 16% kidney function. (gasps) Wow. Which makes me eligible for transplant and dialysis and all of that other stuff. And so now I'm trying to at least stabilize my body to a point that I could actually go under a knife. Lupus caused this, but it's kind of like a horrible ex that came in and wrecked your life and like burnt your house and like Uh never goes away. Yeah. Yeah. But then they leave, Uh you know, they're gone. But then you now you have to deal with what they just did. So it's not even active anymore. It's just really the CKD that we're dealing with now. So there's some hope then, maybe if you could get a transplant or something. Yeah, there is. And that's a whole other process. And I need to wrap my head around that. So I just found all this out in December. So So, thank you. And it took time, like, obviously went into a very deep depression. My anxiety was through the roof. And like, my kidney function was dropping as COVID was going on. So it wasn't like... But you know, the odd thing, and obviously I know COVID has ravaged the world Mm -hmm. and it was a a pandemic, but for once, everybody kind of felt the way I have been feeling for the past (sighs) 11 years. And for the first few months of the quarantine, I was absolutely fine. Like I was talking to my niece about it because being sick and like having an autoimmune disease and going through this, some days I have good days. I was able to sometimes live, but the problem was not knowing what days would be good. And so it was kind of like, what the world went through with COVID of like having plans and then having them canceled basically Mm. and not knowing what tomorrow holds, not knowing what you're going to wake up with Mm -hmm. tomorrow. And because one morning I woke up and I had gout, never had gout in my life. Oh my gosh. 
what I had planned for that week, the performances, the stuff I had going was canceled. So a lot of plans got canceled because of the unpredictability of my health, basically. Yeah. So you were kind of like with COVID, you're like, yeah, been there, done that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have to stay at home. Yeah. I have to be isolated. Yeah. Imagine you also, it's like, I mean, I had infertility when I was trying to have kids and I had no patience for anybody complaining about their pregnancy symptoms. You probably felt the same way. It's like, stop, stop your bitching about having to stay home. (laughs) Yeah. I was just like, oh, you're healthy and you have to stay home. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my gosh. I bet too bad. I mean, I I know it sucks, but it's just like, this has been me for years, just disappointment after disappointment. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I was happy, but I just feel like the people in my life finally understood why I was so frustrated all the time. Yes. And they were like, I get it because you become like, I mean, look at the way people acted. You become almost crazy, but I'm trying right now, as I speak to you, to still live life, if that makes sense. For a while, I sort of stopped doing everything towards the beginning of the year because I had kind of accepted a death sentence almost Mm -hmm. or a life that I did not sign up for, that I didn't want to live. Because I was like, I did not sign up to be in my now late 30s, childless, sick, not in the career path that I want and dealing with chronic kidney disease and not knowing like that everything that I had worked for going to grad school, thinking that I would get married, have children, have this great career, like none of that is here. And it's like, what do you do when the life that you thought you had is not the life that you currently have. Have you heard of the book Eloquent Rage? I haven't. I read it a few months ago. I was surprised to hear the the low numbers of marriage for Black women. Yeah. It's called Eloquent Rage by a woman named Brittany Cooper. Really, really good. I recommend it. She talks a lot about her own disappointment about getting to a similar age as you and not being married and not, not having children. And really, really good book. Yeah. There is this issue of marriage with Black women, which I feel like I have a cheat a little bit because for me, being a first-generation American, Nigerian, I found that when I started to date Nigerian guys like me, they wanted a Nigerian woman like me. They wanted another Nigerian. So like they would see me and be like, oh, she's Black. And then they'd hear, oh, you're Nigerian? Oh, Uh. (laughs) let's get married. (laughs) They wanted to get married like as soon as they met you? Yeah, like oh. as soon as they kind of found out that I was Nigerian <laughs> too, because there's this desire to stick with the culture. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not everybody. I'm not going to say everybody. A lot of the Nigerian guys I met, just looking at me, they thought I was American until they heard I was Nigerian. And they're like, oh, then you get me culturally. Then you get our families. Then you get that this is a marriage of families. So you kind of get that this isn't going to be an individualistic marriage. Like, you know, you will accept my family. You, you'll accept our cultural traditions. I think my biggest thing of not being married was dealing with my health and me not being open to allowing anyone else to deal with that as well. Yeah. And also 
being afraid because I mean, I, I've dated, I, I've had boyfriends through this time and, but having this conversation of, by the way, I have lupus, <laughs> I yeah. might, you know, I'm sick. I might be able to give you children. I might not. You might have to take care of me. I might not be the breadwinner. I might not help you in the finance and I will definitely be expensive. I just kind of shielded myself from rejection. Yeah, that makes it especially tough. So dating while having a chronic illness, I think it was more my mental state of not wanting to share my very lows with someone. That makes sense. I really want to connect you with one of my other interview guests. Her name is Avi Sieta, and she was an immigrant from Liberia. I think she came over when she was in her teens, but she also has an autoimmune disease called myositis gravis. Very similar to you, she was in law school when she found out. Wow. And she found out because she had double vision, you know, highly successful woman. And she's actually in sort of a remission now, but you might be interested in her story. Yeah. I'm always interested to hear how people are dealing with uh, with chronic illness because a chronic illness isn't like sometimes it's not going anywhere, but you still have to somehow figure out how to live. And in her case, she basically through clean body living has been able to put herself in a remission. She's been able to see some success in doing that, changing her diet and all that. Changing diet does help immensely. That does change your life. And I did change my diet, but because I have the kidney involvement, it kind of took on a course of its own. Right. When you talked about your anxiety and depression and just kind of feeling like giving up, was there anything in particular that helped you get to the other side? Just hearing about what other people are doing. I'm not going to sit here and say some days I don't have days where I'm right. Like, of course, forget it. But first, my family and I are getting tested for their blood work to see if they can give me a kidney. Seeing people around me, I have a very good friend from college who gave her brother a kidney. He didn't have lupus, but he had chronic kidney disease. I have met many other people who have had lupus nephritis who've gotten kidneys and who are living better lives now. Mm -hmm. So I think seeing other people and then also just being encouraged with people around me who are like, I want to help you in any way I can. And being in a community of artists, I'm still an actor, a writer. I started my own podcast and kind of being in that community of people that are still doing things and this environment of I could still do it from home right now. I'm not necessarily going on anybody's set. I'm not auditioning, but I'm taking on more of like voiceover, writing, things that I can do even when I don't necessarily or can't get out of bed. So when you were in theater, were you in actually like the brick and mortar theater? I started out in theater in New York, off off Broadway, doing regional theater and stuff like that. I went to grad school to learn more about how to create so that mm-hmm. I could create my own content, hmm. which is kind of the story for a lot of Black creators. I don't see myself, so I need to create a space for myself. So I would call it like Tyler parrying my way into the industry because I feel like he wrote Medea and he kind of worked his way into the industry where now he 
can be cast or he can cast himself. He has his own empire, really. But I wanted to basically write myself into the industries. I kind of took a place behind the camera and started writing more. So I've written some short films. I've written on a series, an independent series that is streaming on Amazon called Washed. I wrote for their second season and just started to do project work like that to keep me in my industry while my looks didn't necessarily grant me a place in front Mm -hmm. of the camera until I started to look more like myself. And then COVID hit and I was like, well, then I'm not going on anybody. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess this is giving you some time to prepare yourself for getting back into it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of my friends are actually now working. So people are Uh getting back to work. They are working on films. They are working on uh, TV series. So you told me on the email exchange we had earlier that it would be nice for all people of color to be able to disappear for a while and heal. You can't do that, unfortunately. (laughs) So unfortunately, I mean, let's talk about generational trauma and the current trauma for Black people. This is your time to rant. Rant beginning now. Yes. Okay. First, I feel like there's a lot. Let me first say that I am not celebrating the death of anybody. But on the same day that Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, died, I was not sad. First of all, he lived a very long life. He did. Second of all, he was a part of the colonization of many, many countries, including my own, mm-hmm. including my country of origin. And I was enraged that they actually went to African countries and asked them, how do you feel about the death of Prince Philip? Yes. I don't watch TV much, so I didn't see that. I just oh. happened to catch it. Mm. And this really hit home personally for me because for my thesis for grad school, I did a documentary on Nigeria. At the time, it was 40 years after its civil war, the Biafra War. And in that war, that kind of explains why I'm here in the first place, why my parents moved here in the first place. Their Mm. side lost the war. They were going to part. There was oil. The British said no. And they supplied the other side with ammunition, killing over a million Igbo people. There was a genocide. And they were just slaughtering my tribe. And I was like, Philip is older than the country of Nigeria. So he is not like a descendant of a colonizer. He is a colonizer. Absolutely. So that part, like I have that imperialistic trauma. And then... I come to the United States and I still have the trauma of being Black in America. Because regardless of if I'm Nigerian or not, no cop sees the difference. And I still look at all of the young men and women who are murdered senselessly. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, people try and justify their death, which is in. Infuriating. Oh, yeah. Horrible. And I look at policing in America. Sorry, I went off on that Philip rant because. No, no, that's okay. I I appreciate it. (laughs) There was a side trauma because it's like there's a trauma there as well of being Nigerian and knowing that the UK has ruined my country. Yeah. And that corruption now comes down to our own leaders. Like you've divided a nation or you've created a nation that never should have been a nation. And then I come here and then it's the trauma, which continues from the UK, but also slavery and racial segregation and race riots and lynching and the history of policing. And I also have to just say that there can be no good cops Uh in a system that does not allow it. It is not meant to create cops when you have something called a blue wall of silence. It is 
not meant to create good cops when your job is literally to protect state property, whether Mm -hmm. it is a person or a thing. It is not meant to have good cops when the other part of your job is to build revenue for a city, a municipality, or a state. It is all about money and power and systemic racism. So I want us to get to the root of this and realize that the history of policing in America is simply continuing in what we see today. There's a great episode on this podcast called Throughline, and it talks about the history of policing. And in listening to what happened 100 years ago, 30 years ago, it's the same thing that's happening in 2021. And nothing has changed. The fact that Kyle Rittenhouse (laughs) can walk by police with a large, I don't know what kind of gun that was, after shooting two people, and they give him some water, and a judge refuses to issue a warrant out for his arrest because he violated his parole. But this young man, it's come out that there was a, an old warrant out for his arrest for a robbery. You mean Dante, right? Yeah. Well, no, they pulled him over for the air freshener. Uh-huh. And I looked it up and I was just like, okay, I don't, I still don't know if that's completely true, but it's still a warrant, whether he was armed yeah. or not. I mean, people keep saying, oh, she made a mistake. She's supposed to take, like, well, why were you going to tase him? Why are we tasing or shooting or whatever people yeah. who are running away? Go find him then. Right. You can issue that warrant by going to his house. Right. And I also want to say, like, like, we just talked about my health. If a pharmacist accidentally gave me medicine that I'm allergic to or the wrong medicine that then I have a bad reaction to and I die, that pharmacist is in huge trouble. And it's not like, oh, it was just an accident. Right. They do everything in their power to not make such mistakes because there are real consequences to their mistakes. That does not happen with police in this country. Absolutely no consequence. No, it's interesting. Uh, my husband and I were talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, and and he was saying, "I'm really encouraged because you know it's like the blue wall is sort of you know crumbling a little bit." And I was like, I, "And I'm usually not the skeptic. My husband's more of a skeptic than I am." And I was like, "I don't know. I mean, when have actually they held police accountable? Hardly ever. And I, I, I and I don't I don't think the blue wall of silence is coming down. Mm-hmm. I think." Derek Chauvin's trial shows the systemic problem with policing in the first place. Right. This is a man who had 18 prior complaints. This is a man who has uh, kneeled on someone's neck before, who has killed someone before. And the system let him through to do right. it. Right. This is a man who did this on camera while staring at the camera and three other cops were around and none of them tried to stop him. Mm-hmm. This is a systemic problem. This is though, I think they're willing to sacrifice this one mm. to keep their system in place. Could be, you know, like the woman who killed Dante Wright. It's like, she may be a scapegoat. They're not going to examine the system. They're not going to examine the system. That you are a 25-year vet of the police force. How how in the world are you confusing a gun for a taser? And my rant goes like this. First of all, let's stop with the good cop, bad cop. Let's stop with the bad apple spoils the bunch. The bunch is rotten. You need to dig it out from its core, like from its root to the top policing and not reformed 
It needs to be completely redone because we have police that are now living above the law with Mm -hmm. qualified immunity. We have uh, police that don't face any financial repercussions because the payouts come from us, the city taxpayer. So how do you have a system where you don't go to jail and you don't pay anything? What are you learning that Mm -hmm. you can get away with anything? You have this blue wall of silence, which I have talked to police officers because in my frustration, I volunteer and I'm a part of the leadership with an organization called Texas Organizing Project, which works to better the lives and we center the lives of Black and Latino communities in Texas. And so we have had conversations with police. We have had conversations because we've had our own police murders here in Dallas. And police, if you get them alone, will admit that there is this wall of silence, that you do not rat on another police officer, even if they're doing something wrong. So that tells me that you're not a good cop either. If you see your fellow cop doing something, and even if you did rat them out, you face greater consequences than they do for what they did, then that system is completely messed up. Oh, yeah. We also have to see that police see black skin as a threat. And I don't think you can train out implicit bias and racism. We saw with the Capitol riot that there are a lot of white supremacist police. This is not new. Uh There was a report by the FBI in 2006 saying white supremacists are infiltrating law enforcement and the military. I think we see that. So Basically, you've replaced your hood for a blue uniform and you're carrying out your dream to kill Mm -hmm. some black people. And you're armed by the state. And you're armed by the state and you're backed by them. I am tired also of the white community, mostly, and Christians as well, Mm -hmm. so-called Christians, Mm -hmm. justifying the murder of, oh, well, you should have complied. Because I saw a whole bunch of you not comply for the past year. Whether it was wearing a mask, whether it was quarantining, or whether it was the result of an election. But we're supposed to comply. You want your guns because the government might come and you want to fight the government. But you want, I see that as you want the government to control those that you think need to be controlled, but not you. The police are fine when they police black and brown people, but Mm -hmm. not us. Yes. Not white people. No, you're not like, I've seen too many videos of people questioning white people questioning cops and being like, this is my right, blah, blah, blah. Why aren't you complying? Because that compliance thing is for is for me, not Mm -hmm. for you. I was just thinking back to Colin Kaepernick and how one time Trevor Noah went on his own little rant about, you know, you're telling us that we shouldn't kneel, but every other way that we protest it's like, I mean, what is the what is the correct way to protest if kneeling yeah. is bad? You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. And that's another thing. People always are like, I hate whenever they bring up MLK. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Bring uh, up MLK. Uh, right. Let me tell you the reality of MLK. Mm-hmm. First of all, he was hated during his time. Mostly. Mm-hmm. They called him the same thing that you're calling Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Communist. Mm -hmm. a terrorist. He is the orchestrator of riot. And let's not act like the man died. The man was assassinated. He didn't just die of a heart attack. 
he was assassinated because he was seen as a threat. Let's stop with that nonsense of trying to temper Black people whenever we get upset with these things of like, Martin Luther King was about nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you killed him. He yeah. was killed. So be quiet. And he wasn't telling people they should just roll over and do nothing. <laughs> no. No, and he also said the riot is the voice uh, of the the unheard. Yes, exactly. First of all, these people that think that they would have stood behind MLK today, you would have done the same thing that you're doing right now Mm -hmm. back then. The people that sat at the Woolworth counter are basically Colin Kaepernick today. And you would have screamed at them and you would have said you're breaking the law because technically that was the law to not have coloreds at the counter. Yeah, that was the law. So don't act like you are somehow better and you're about the liberation or the freedom of all people when honestly you are just like the people that came before you that are sitting there screaming at the Little Rock Nine for integrating schools. You are the same exact people. It's just a different time. And where would we be now if it hadn't been for those people that had protested or rioted? Exactly. I feel like we're going to look back at this time and be like, Colin Kaepernick, he's hated during his time, like MLK, I guarantee Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. he will be exalted 20, 30 years from now. Right. Probably by the right wing, right? They'll find a way. Probably by the right wing. They'll find a way. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware I'm actually in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. Which is where we, yeah. Yes, which is where we had a lot of protests this summer. And actually, yeah. now they're kind of kicking back up again. And last night, I read that they set fire to a police union hall. Yeah. And they're, you know, talking about bringing the FBI in again. It's going to be interesting to see what our summer is going to be like again. You know, and I don't know how much you know about Oregon, but Oregon was actually founded as a racist state. It actually was. was codified in the Constitution. So I feel like, I mean, I went to a number of protests last summer. I was not setting fires or anything, but it's like my 18-year-old son was out there regularly and I was like, okay, you need to come home at a certain time. You know, I kind of feel like I'm not going to be out there setting fires, but I understand why people are. It's like I read yesterday that the defense for Derek Chauvin, how do you say his name? Chauvin? Chauvin. 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 Derek Chauvinist. I'll just think that way. Derek Chauvinist. Apparently the defense witness said, oh, that crowd at the, you know, at the George Floyd killing site was noisy and I feared for the police officer's life. And oh my God, that just infuriated me. Well, yeah, of course they were angry and they were upset. Of course. And like you're you're killing a man. (laughs) Yeah. And why were you not concerned about George Floyd's life? You were concerned about the police officer's life. Oh my gosh. That really made me upset. And it's really frustrating that I hear like, it shouldn't be a right left issue. It should just be a human issue. Absolutely. But those are the people that constantly try and justify the murder. And it's like, well, he died because of all the fentanyl and he was a drug addict and he did this and he did that. And it's like, I could have sworn that wasn't it Rush Limbaugh who was like a drug addict yes. and he got a medal of freedom? I could have sworn that now there is a an opioid crisis mm-hmm. that these people are not criminalized, but they are actually like looked at as people who need help. Yeah. But somehow, and they don't deserve to be murdered. They need help. Right. But George Floyd is this horrible, hardened criminal who deserves to die because there was some amount of fentanyl in his system. Exactly. If you're white, you can get away with everything. That's basically pretty much pretty much. And that police union, that is the other thing that 
I am not for union busting, but the police union is one union that needs to go. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. Because all they do is uphold horrible cops and it does nothing but create a horrible system. And I think the fact that, I mean, I've talked to other podcast guests too, who've had the same experience, who have friends who are in the police system who say, yeah, it's it's totally screwed up. There are people I, from I, the inside I, saying that. I have been arrested in St. Louis when I was in college. I was pulled over. I asked the police officer, why did you pull me over? I was driving to go work out and then go study. And he said, oh, well, you have Texas license plates. There's a lot of drugs coming out of Texas. And I was oh like, my do I God. look like a drug dealer? Really? Oh. And and I think he was trying to, you know, patronize me. But like, I got into an argument with him and I started talking back. I was like, tell me why. Like, I need to know why I'm, I wasn't speeding. He didn't like that I was talking back. So I ended up being arrested. And I you got arrested to- for what, for talking back? Yeah, oh, I, wow. I got arrested for I did have parking tickets. Okay, so I was uh, a hardened uh-huh. criminal. Hardened criminal, parking. right? Right. <laughs> okay. So I mean, if anything had happened to me, they'll be like, well, she doesn't pay her parking. Right. Or she doesn't, you know, uh, refill the meter. And as soon as I came in, so w- it's kind of like this cop thing, like it was two white cops. And then by the end of it, it was six white cops. Oh, my gosh. And I was just and I was you know, being arrested. And I was thrown in the back of like a paddy wagon. And there were three men back there with me. And I came to like the holding cell where they take your fingerprints and all that other stuff. And there was a black cop there. And I told him everything that happened. I told him like, yeah, I mouthed off. Because after a while, I was just like, why are you here? And I was really pissed. And I told him every, I, yeah, I mouthed off after a while when he wouldn't give me a reasonable reason why you are pulling me over. And this black cop that was, you know, when I walked in, he was like, why are you here? Because he saw I was a college kid. I'm not really like some horrible criminal. And I told him everything. And he was like, oh, you're here because you're black. Ah, And that was out of the mouth of this black cop. And he was like, yeah, the white girls can kick, spit, hit, yep. punch, and they don't get arrested. Yep. He was like, they don't want to see your black mouth mouth, mouth off to them. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him. I was like, what are you going to do about that? And he's like, what can I do? <sighs> yeah. And it's like inside they know, but right. what can he do? Right. Because he would probably face greater consequences if he actually did anything. I understand why there are black people who want to be cops. I understand that. And they probably feel like they help the system. But once they get in there, they really can't. I feel I especially feel for police chiefs who are black, who are often put into that position when cities are in trouble. Yeah. You know, they're in a horrible position. But it's like they've been silenced themselves or sometimes they go along with it. That it's not helping. Right. And, and, And the solution is not to become a cop. The solution is to completely, and this sounds very radical, is to dismantle and start all over again. Mm-hmm. Because with everything that we have, with private prisons, with uh, cities making money from tickets and all this other stuff, from bail, cash bail, people like staying in jail over $500, mm-hmm. and then decriminalizing marijuana, but you're still pulling people over. 
We actually, with Texas Organizing Project, we're trying to get marijuana decriminalized because we did the research when Black people are pulled over for whatever reason, they are 10 times more likely to go to jail than white people for possession of marijuana. So the numbers that we saw were like over a thousand Black people jailed for marijuana compared to a hundred and something white people. And we know that they use marijuana at the same rate. I really think that everything should be decriminalized, but I Mm -hmm. feel like there is still a way for them to find a way somehow. Yeah. yeah. You know? Right. And then I got so pissed because I I happened to be watching The View and John Boehner, the former Speaker uh-huh. of the House on there, and Joy Behar asked him a question of like, you know, why didn't you say anything? Because, you know, his book is coming out talking about the crazies in the Republican Party. And Megan was like, he's having a great life. He's in the cannabis business now. And I'm like, excuse me? I know for a fact that he did not vote for decriminalization. Exactly. And now you're (laughs) going to make money. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of black and brown people in jail for marijuana. Uh I was so pissed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So let's shift focus slightly, but still kind of on the same topic, which is that I, when I did a little research about you and looked at your podcast, I saw that you love Lovecraft Country your favorite show. Yes. I love Lovecraft Country too. And actually I got the tip to watch it from a podcast interview with the Reformed Whores. They're actors and musicians and they told me to watch it. So I got HBO Max specifically so I could watch it. So <laughs> so what did you love most about the show? So kind of like when I emailed you and said I wish, you know, POC could disappear. I think it's a coping mechanism and you kind of want us to be magical to deal with our trauma. And it kind of gave that, first of all, gave a history lesson, a much needed history lesson to people who probably never heard of the Tulsa race riot. Right. And never knew a lot of the things that have happened in this country, like sundown towns Mm -hmm. that still exist, by the way. So I like that it gave a history lesson, first of all, because our schools have failed us in that respect. Mm -hmm. But it was just the aspect of Black people winning. Yes, yes. And it was just like, yes, beat up the racists. Yes. 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 Like completely destroy them. Mm -hmm. Like and live in this better world. It was sort of like this alternate ending that you wanted for that time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also showing the murder of Emmett Till, showing what that did to that community and showing the reality of that. And I just love that it was this mix of history, of adventure, of sci-fi, and of magic. And it was centered around this Black family that was a family, that there was love. And we looked into the trauma and dysfunction and why like his father was the way he was, Mm -hmm. how he came about. Yes. Um, And dealing with so many other things. Also, like the homophobia. There were so many layers to it that you could have like discussions forever about it. Yeah. And it just didn't center Black trauma. Mm -hmm. But it also made Black people the heroes of their own story. Mm. I feel like I should watch it again because after I watched each episode, I would go research it and I found all this other stuff 
you know, that I, yeah. uh, that I, that I missed or I didn't know the significance of. There's a podcast by a writer, by one of the writers that was very helpful. Oh, that's a good uh, idea. Maybe I'll watch it again and listen to the podcast. Yeah. It kind of helped me learn how to watch the show. And I was like, I don't know what is <laughs> happening, but I'm going to watch. And mm-hmm. then I listened to the podcast. I'm like, I get, yeah. I understand how to take this in. Yeah. Yeah, there were so many powerful images and just thinking back on, yeah, like the Emmett Till episode. I was so heart, and I forget the young girl's name. Uh, Diana. The Diana. Oh my gosh. I just, I've just felt heartbroken for her. And then the very last episode, she was left alone in the car. I was like, oh, this poor girl. Yeah. <laughs> like She's alone. And oh my God. And then she becomes triumphant without giving any spoilers. She's not a victim. <laughs> so I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. But, the Tulsa Race Riot episode was just really, I've, I've heard other people say that what, the show Watchmen, which I have not watched yet, but apparently Watchmen even goes into the Tulsa Race Riot even further. Yeah, I would say that uh, Watchmen starts out with the Tulsa Race Riot and our race massacre, really, but it doesn't show the world before it. It kind of goes straight into oh, the violence. Oh, I see. Okay. And I do like that Lovecraft Country shows you that this was a community. Yeah. These were people. There was a prom or a dance going on the night that this happened. You know what I mean? People Mm -hmm. were living their their everyday normal lives. You had your tiffs with your neighbor. You had families. You had generations of families living in a home, but they were upper middle class. They pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, right? Not even quite a little over 50 years after the end of slavery, Mm -hmm. 1921, this community, you know, was growing and thriving. And it was also destroyed by the government because there were bombs dropped on it. Right. And then it also opened the conversation of Tulsa was not the only one. There were so many other Tulsa's that Mm -hmm. happened. And it kind of lends itself to the state of many in the Black community today of why there's this wealth gap, this equity gap, mm-hmm. and this lie of like, well, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right, right. And it also lends itself, I will never forget during George Floyd's murder, there is an, an activist that they interviewed and her video just made me cry, but it mm-hmm. also just left me shaking for days. And she was just screaming that she was just like, you're talking about buildings. You're talking about us destroying our communities. You have destroyed our communities. Mm-hmm. And we have tried to be a part of this community of this country where you told us pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But then you have Tulsa, where every time we did it, you ruined our communities. You have Rosewood. You have Seneca Village that is now Central Park. You have ruined our communities. Then you kill us. Then you lynch us. Then you've separated us. Now you're still killing us, but it's state sanctioned. And you want us to continue to be peaceful Mm. when you have shown us nothing but violence, hatred, and death. And it's always really frustrating, even with Joe Biden, who was not even my 10th pick. (laughs) Let me just make that clear. But it's like, the call is always like, well, you know, the response cannot be violence. But it's never it's never the action should never be violence. It's never correcting the violence that initiates this. Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating that after a while, I mean, this is a country that goes to war 
over anything. And then right. you're telling its citizens that we shouldn't like be upset. You have to be peaceful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you peaceful? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So it's like there are attacks on us and you want us to be peaceful. But then when there are attacks on America, it's like there's not even full like any real attacks. There's full out war. There's always a peacefulness that's called upon black people and only black people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. And it's frustrating. And I think my biggest thing is that I think many people in power and certain white people are afraid. Tucker Carlson like had this whole thing about white replacement, which uh, that guy. Anyway, but I think the biggest fear of losing power, this whole MAGA, take our country back, dog whistles that are no longer dog whistles, they're just out and out bullhorn. You're afraid that if people of color or black people get power, that they might do to you what you've done to them right. for generations. Yeah, I don't want to give spoilers to Lovecraft Country, but that was the powerful thing about the ending. Definitely go watch it and Watchmen. And then let that be the catalyst that lets you look into the or true history of yeah. what's gone on in this country that we don't ever talk about. That explains the state that we're in now. You want to give a little plug for your podcast? Sure. I started the podcast. It's called Broke, Gifted, and Black. It's a play on words of Nina Simone's song, Young, Gifted, and Black. We talk about the industry. And then we also interview gifted people who turn their passion into a living. And then we also have a part where we give out our broke as fuck and gifted as fuck words to people or organizations who have done great things or crappy things. And so far, it's been really eye-opening just to hear the stories of hairstylists, actors, writers, writers, directors, all kinds of people who have had all kinds of rejection and still found a way to make their passion into a full-time paycheck. And we have a lot of fun. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? My grandfather and my grandmother on my mom's side, they were not educated. My grandfather, instead of going to school, put his younger brother through school. And during the Nigerian civil war, my grandparents had nine children. Before either one of them died, they buried seven. But my grandfather, regardless of all of the pain and heartache, he um, experienced never let that harden who he was like he was one of the most loving people I've ever met Mm -hmm. he absolutely adored and treasured my grandmother even though he wasn't a so-called educated man he knew to educate my mother at that time they stopped educating a woman like right after I guess what would be considered here eighth grade to kind of prepare her to find some sort of trade or something that she can do until she gets married. And my grandfather sent my mom to nursing school, which everyone was like, why are you wasting money on this woman? You know, why are you wasting money on your girl? And he did it anyway. That grit and resilience of bearing seven children, being an illiterate, but still working hard to put your family through school and put your daughter through school. I attribute like who I am and where I am to him because I could easily be somewhere else. Yeah. Anything else you want to say to our listeners? I do want to say if you're listening to this, I'm going to think that you are at least open to certain things. And the answer for all of us is not just to be not racist. It's to actively work for anti-racism. Just think of what it would actually be like if we had equity. Just think of how much better our world would be. And when you 
help to lift the least among us, all of us get better. Amen. So whatever you can do in your life, know that you can't do everything. You can do something. It's our responsibility. There's no other choice. Yeah. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. You helped me. I haven't thought about how like the holes in my back oh, hurt. Oh, good. I'm glad it was a distraction. <laughs> I know. I love it. No, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I mean, I've talked a lot to uh, my guests about race, but I feel like we went deeper today. So I feel very honored that you were willing to have this conversation. Thank you for having me on. It's just been a wonderful time meeting you and, and talking to you, Nana. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Same to you, Marie. Yeah, I really hope that you feel better. Thank soon. you. Yeah, Thank and you I will much. be keeping you on my prayers for that kidney issue and that you get a transplant. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love my conversation with Nana and I'm honored she felt comfortable sharing her story and opinions about racism and policing. Don't forget, you can find further details about her journey and photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the Finding Fertile Ground podcast tab. Next week, I interview Danielle Meadows-Stinnett on the Companies That Care podcast. Danielle owns Octane Design Studios and is also a podcaster, mentor, wife, mama for, and lover of cosplay, comics, chai tea, and live MMA. She is another lover of the Lovecraft Country series. A grassroots developer and curator, Danielle has helped brand and launch over 100 local businesses across America and in her home state of Kentucky. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you like today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Mm-hmm.